0: Well, last week, we began a new sermon series. We began a study uh, that we'll be in for a while on one of Paul's major epistles, uh, the, letter, uh, the first letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, it's in your Bible, as 1 Corinthians. And we've called our sermon series in this wonderful book, The Cross-Shaped Community. Because one of the things, uh, one of the central points of this book and one of the central convictions that draws us to look at it is the idea that the Christian church, uh, touching on something that Batch just prayed about, is meant to be shaped differently uh, than the cultures and the world around it. That we are made to be shaped uh, in the image of the self-giving Savior that we follow. One who claimed greatness not uh, by his own success, his own wealth, his own power, uh, but through his own laying down of his life uh, for us and for the world. And so we believe that that cross uh, is at the center of our life together as a community. It's meant to be at the center of our individual lives and our family lives, uh, that it is meant to shape us uh, in profound ways. And so, uh, as we come to our passage this morning, if you are willing and able,
1: would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is 1 Corinthians 1, 18, through 2, 5. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love.
0: Thank you, Matt. You can be seated. You know, this section of 1 Corinthians may be uh, one of the high watermarks uh, in all of Paul's writings. Uh, It is, um, I think, a unique and wonderful section uh, of 1 Corinthians, uh, a passage that, if it gets into our lives and into our minds and into our hearts, has a tremendous power to change absolutely everything about our lives and about the way that we approach Uh, Life in this world. It's a revolutionary passage. One uh, New Testament scholar, uh, Richard Hayes, who uh, teaches at Duke, uh, really at the top of his field, one of the most brilliant men uh, working in the New Testament, said this about this passage If that shocking event, that is the event of the cross, is the revelation of the deepest truth about the character of God, then our whole way of seeing the world is turned upside down. Everything has to be reevaluated in light of the cross. For anyone who grasps the paradoxical logic of this text, the world can never look the same again. You can almost see him, a man now in his 70s, getting to this passage and setting his pen down and pushing his chair back from his desk and just, oh man, I see it. If people see this, it has an incredible power to change their lives. And I believe this is true whether you are hearing this for the first time or whether uh, you have studied this for much of your life, that when we truly grapple with the fact that what Paul is saying here, that if, if, if the cross is true, if salvation really comes to the world, not through a display of strength, power, might, and wisdom, but through a display of weakness, humility, service, and death, that it means that we have to fundamentally rethink everything we know about life in this world. You know, what Paul is saying here is basically uh, that the human race, not one particular culture, not one particular city, the human race as a species is wrong about one of the most significant things uh, in life, in fact, the very center of life itself, that every human culture... Uh, in the various ways that we think about the world and think about God, that all humanity essentially approaches salvation, however we define that, by thinking that salvation is basically within human grasp. That whatever it is that we see as salvation, that it's attainable through wisdom, through morality, through goodness, through power, that somehow we can attain to salvation. In every, every bit of the human race, from Corinth, uh, the audience of this letter, to, to Jacksonville, Florida today, are caught in this same pursuit of salvation by our own goodness. Right? That's what Paul says when he, when he says in this passage uh, that the cross is a stumbling block to Jews right? and foolishness to Gentiles. That's everybody in the world. right? That's saying that it's foolish to those inside of Israel and to those outside of Israel. That's everybody that everybody looks at the cross and says, that cannot be the way. That cannot be the way that God has made for the salvation of the world. Right? All of us basically think of life as a ladder, Right? that life is a ladder where we progress towards salvation, fullness, life. And maybe it's an intellectual ladder that we climb by our own wisdom. That's what he says about the Greeks. Right? Maybe it's a success ladder that we, that we climb through our own attainment at our own power. Maybe it's a relational ladder that we climb as we climb the social world around us. But all of us fundamentally look at the world as a ladder to be climbed. And Paul says, no, no, no. If you think you can attain to salvation through climbing a ladder, the cross knocks the ladder down. It takes the ladder out from under us. and says you can never get to where you want to get by that particular way. And so when the entire world is convinced, so convinced that the way that we see things is right, that our ladders are real, what Paul essentially is saying here is that if you're, so con- if you're seeing things upside down and you're so convinced that you see things right side up, that when a message comes that's really right side up, you'll see it as upside down. You got that? Right, if you think you're seeing it right side up, but it's really upside down, and what's right side up comes and lives in the midst of you, you'll think that it's upside down to the point that it's foolish and weak and not worth your time. And Paul says, no, no, no. That upside downing of the world is the key to seeing the whole world right side up. You know, one of the uh, most popular TV shows, one that hooked me, I'll admit, a couple of years ago was Stranger Things. I don't know if you saw this show, it was on Netflix. it was set like, it was a group of children in the 1980s, so immediately I was hooked. They were dressing like Ghostbusters and collecting baseball cards, and so its immediate hook uh, was one of nostalgia. Right? Like, oh yeah, that's what it was like to be a kid in the 1980s. But the plot of this, of this story, and I won't give all of it away, uh, is that this very ordinary group of suburban kids uh, stumbles into a parallel dimension uh, called the Upside Down. It mirrors this world except for it is completely given over to evil and death and destruction. And that upside down world is on the process of invading this world and sucking all of us into death and destruction with it. In this group of four or five kids, it's their job to fight against the invasion of this other dimension and save the world. And I I won't give it away, Um, but there is a season two, so they must be at least somewhat successful. And the story of the gospel that Paul presents is something like that, except for instead of another dimension invading this world that's marked by evil and sin, he says there is an upside down world that's invading this world, but it's full of goodness and love and light. But it does look like a mirror image, an upside down version of this world. This world is bent and broken as it is by sin and selfishness and pride. And he says that the church, is actually our job not to resist the invasion of this upside-down kingdom, but to live into it, to announce it, to begin to believe that the upside-down world is actually the right-side-up world and that it will uh, come to invade uh, this world and to change it. And so what we're going to look at uh, this morning in this passage is an upside-down salvation, an upside-down community, and an upside-down mission in the world. First, an upside down picture of salvation. You know, Paul uh, says of the cross, he says of the cross that it is folly, that it's foolishness to the world around as they look in on it. He goes on to say in verse 22, that the Jews, those within Israel, looked for signs, signs of God's power. In the Greeks, they were looking for wisdom, Sophia, the, the prized Greek philosophical wisdom. And to both of those people groups, the cross looked like a scandal to the Jews. That's what that word stumbling block means, that it's a scandal, it's offensive to them. And it looks foolish or pitiable to the Greeks. You know that uh, Israel, when they were uh, looking and awaiting for God's salvation, they expected that it would come uh, like a new exodus, if you remember the old story of God's rescue, his exodus of his people from slavery in Egypt, it was marked by some incredibly spectacular signs, right? The, the plagues that God brought into Israel, the dividing of the Red Sea, the miraculous reign of manna, right? It was a story of God's saving work marked by signs of his power. And so, when they looked to, for God to, to intervene in their lives again, they thought that it would look again like signs of power, that it would look like spectacular intervention against the Romans who ruled over them, miraculous, setting them free, setting his king back on his throne. And so, for them to say that their Messiah came, and instead of being marked by signs of power, he actually found himself crucified by the Romans in the most shameful death that one could die on a cross, to say that that was what the Messiah looked like was scandalous. It was offensive. It was horrifying. And then for the Greeks, who were convinced that salvation came through enlightenment, that it came through uh, attaining to a level of rational thought and understanding of the universe so that you could transcend the frailty of your body, things like sickness and death, for them to say that the greatest teacher, the great savior of the world, that he came and it it looked like death on a cross. That looked just absolutely insane. That sounded foolish to their ears. And yet Paul says that, that scandalous, foolish image of a Messiah dying on the cross, dying stripped and humiliated and bloodied. Dying a death that in the ancient world uh, was only reserved for, for slaves and for enemies of the state, those convicted of treason. To see someone dying in that kind of way and to say that is salvation was absolutely scandalous. Now you, you people don't look that scandalized. I've seen, I've seen a few scandalized faces in my day and you, you people look like you expect that uh, from a Christian pulpit, right? And to some degree we do, right? I think one of the great scandals of the contemporary Christian church is that the the cross is no longer a scandal that we've gotten so used to it. We decorate our churches with it. Uh, we wear it around our necks. We tattoo it on our bodies, right? It has become such a symbol for us of what Christianity is, of what's it about, that it no longer strikes us as offensive, It no longer strikes us as anything other than kind of religiously pedestrian. And yet in the ancient world, it was truly and deeply shocking to think that a cross, a symbol of torture and death, would ever become a religious symbol. You know, interestingly, uh, historians tell us that if you walked into a church for the first 300 years of the Christian story, of Christian existence, You would see all kinds of symbols for Christianity. You would see the fish that we've come to recognize, the ichthus. You would see boats. You would see pelicans. But one thing you would not see for 300 years in a Christian church was a cross. That it took 300 years of the church's worship, of them telling this story, before the cross became seen as a symbol of life. What happened in that 300 years? is that everyone who had ever seen a crucifixion had died. That while there were people who still had a crucifixion in their living memory, as long as there were old people in the church who could say, son, you need to take that cross down because I've seen a crucifixion and let me tell you what it's like. It is not warm, it is not loving, it is not sentimental. It is horrific and graphic and shameful. So it wasn't until uh, actual crucifixions had ceased and gone away and nobody remembered them before the cross could be used as a symbol of hope and goodness and life. Because the cross uh, truly was uh, a way of dying that was shameful and torturous. And so it leads us to ask why. Right? Why did Jesus have to die that way for us? Right, maybe you've been in the Christian church uh, long enough or hung around long enough that you get that he needed to die. But why couldn't he just hang around, uh, die of old age, or die of you know, crossing the street hit by a, a donkey or something? Uh, why did he have to die in this most humiliating and painful of ways? It's because the Christian belief is that on the cross, Jesus took into himself and onto himself all of the ugliness guilt and shame uh, that you and i and all the human beings who have lived before us have deserved that he took onto himself on the cross all of the ugliness all of the sin all of the pride and exposed it there and that sin is ugly it is shameful it is torturous it is grievous You know, if life, uh, if salvation in this life can be attained through ascending the ladder, can be attained through our own wisdom, goodness, self-control, morality, right? If that is the way of salvation, you can get that way without ever having to acknowledge the darkest parts of your own life, right? If, If we're saved by the best parts of ourselves, our morality and our righteousness and our wisdom, If we're saved by the best parts of ourselves, what do we do with the worst parts of ourselves? What do we do with the parts of ourselves, our own foolishness, and our own greed, and our own lust, and our own anger, and our own violence, and our own addictions? Right? The cross, uh, the ugly scene of the cross, demands that we actually look at and acknowledge the ugliest parts of our own life. It requires us to look at ourselves honestly enough to say, I need that kind of salvation. I need a salvation that doesn't just try to gloss over the parts of myself that I've been trying to change for decades and haven't been able to, the parts of myself that I don't tell my closest friends about, the parts of myself and my inner life that I hide even from my spouse. Right, if those parts of our lives are real, then it takes a way of salvation that lays those things out in the open, our guilt and our shame and acknowledges it. It takes a certain amount of humility to accept that kind of salvation, that I need that kind of Savior bleeding and dying for me. But then this kind of upside-down salvation calls us to be an upside-down kind of community. Look at what he says uh, in verse 26. He says, "...for consider your calling, brothers." Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Not many of you were much in the world's eyes. Not many very smart, right? There's not a, you don't have to take an entrance exam to get into the church, right? There's not an SAT to make sure that you're smart enough. Not many of you uh, were of noble birth. Right? Not many of you had enough in the bank account uh, that God said, yeah, come be a part of my church so that you can give and we can build nice things. Right? Not many of you uh, were uh, much in the world standing, Paul says to the Corinthians. Now notice that he doesn't say not any of you. Right? He doesn't say none of you were wise, none of you were wealthy, none of you were high-bred. But he says Not many. Right, uh, commentators and historians believe that the church in Corinth basically was a cross-section of life in an urban community, that there were a few rich, there were a lot of poor, there were a lot in between, that there were uh, some of higher social classes, some of lower, some who uh, made their living with their minds, some who made their living with their hands. There were uh, free people, there were slaves, there were Jews, there were Greeks, that this body was a cross-section of life uh, in a city. A cross-section much like this one, it's one of the things that I love most about our church, is that we really are, people have come from every walk of life to be knit together into this family. And yet Paul can say to them, not many of you, you know, taken as a whole, not many of you looking at you from the outside are going to make the front pages of the papers when they say, hey, look at the wonderful people who are Christians. Look at the famous people that are Christians. And that has always been the case. We know from the earliest days of the Christian church, when the Romans uh, sought to discredit the Christian church, they said, look, are we really going to take our, our advice from slaves and from the poor? Right? There are, no, there are not many philosophers among them. There's not many social elites. This is a ragtag group of normal people. Certainly, if they were right, then there would be more made up of the, the people who are somebodies, not so made up of the people uh, who we look at as nobodies. And yet Paul here says that that's actually precisely the point, right? That the point of the church being the church as we are is that we might be a sign to the world that the latter isn't the way towards salvation, right? This is, this is both incredibly good news for you, and also it's a little bit of a blow to the ego, isn't it, right? To say that, uh, that you are a sign, the good news is you are included in God's family just as you are. No amount of your wisdom or your wealth or your goodness gets you in the door. And the bad news is that it's precisely the point that God wanted to take people like you as weak and as foolish and as poor, as as mixed a bag as we are, that God chose to take us, what he calls the nobodies, the foolish things of this world, so that he could display to the world that their ladders aren't the way to salvation, that salvation comes through the cross. God has been warning the world for some time that this was how it was going to work, right? That is a long-standing theme in the Bible that God will reverse the social order of this world so that the small are made grand, so that the foolish are made wise. 1 Samuel 2.8, Hannah's prayer, Samuel's mother. She prays, she says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and to inherit a seat of honor. Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her song, in Luke chapter 1, says of God, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich He has sent away empty. The church, as mixed as it is, is the anticipated sign that God's kingdom has broken into this world, that the upside down was invading the right side up to show those who think they know right side up what's really upside down. That the church, this group of people, this group of weak, sinful people loved by Jesus, is a sign of how he works. You know, you remember from last week, we said that the central problem in Corinth, Paul had gotten a letter uh, from some friends and a visit from some friends that told him how divided the church had become, that they had divided up over who follows the best leaders, over who's the most gifted, right, who's the most wealthy, that the, the, the church was divided in countless ways. And Paul's going to go on to talk more about the practical ways to, to get through those divisions later in the letter. But here, Paul doesn't, doesn't even mention the divisions. But what Paul is doing is he's laying a theological groundwork that forever can undermine and destroy the divisions within the human family, the divisions that keep us from one another. And he says, he diagnoses the problem in Corinth and everywhere, in human division. And he says, you know what it is? It's boasting. It's boasting. And the cross means forever that no one can boast before God. That the cross is the end of human boasting and therefore has the power to erase human division. How does this work? Well, if you are convinced, if you boast in your own culture, if you are convinced that your own culture and custom and ways of doing things are what make you who you are, are what make you wonderful, and you are arrogant about that, you are prideful about that, You can't help but look down on others from other cultures, right? If you're convinced yours is the best, what does that mean about the others, right? If you are somebody who's convinced that your own wealth, your success, the way that you uh, created wealth for yourself by your own ingenuity, hard work, and wisdom, if you're convinced that that's what makes you a worthy human being, you can't help but look down on the poor. You can't help but look down on them and say, you know what, if they worked as hard as I did... If they were as smart as I was, they too could attain what I have attained. Right, if you look uh, at your own, whatever it is, if it's your own political party and you boast in that, you can't help but look down on those who look look at the world differently from a political standpoint. Right, if you boast in your own own social standing, the number of friends and, and people that look up to you, you can't help but look down on the friendless. And so here's what Paul's saying. He's saying if you realize at the cross that there is no more ground for human boasting, you don't have room for pride in your morality, right? We didn't even touch on the people who think that it's their religious morality that makes them better and how unsafe and even dangerous they are to those who know that they've blown it and failed, right? If you come to look at those things, Paul's saying once you see that the cross is the only way you can stand before God, All of a sudden, there's no room to boast in your goodness, in your culture, in your wealth, in your popularity. You can come together as one family. That's what the cross does. That's how the cross makes a new community. Right? If you are down and out, if you are one who struggles to believe that you have worth and value before God or in his community or with other people, look at Jesus on the cross and see how much he loves you. See how much he bled and died. See how deep his love is for you so that you could be included, so that you could be one of his children. There's no room in that world to be ashamed, to hang your head, to feel like you don't belong. And if you're someone who's lifted up, someone who in their pride doesn't think that, thinks that they've attained the top of the ladder, you too look at Jesus on the cross. Look at how he had to die in order for you to have a standing before God. He loved you enough that he was willing to die. Nobody is below his love. And yet you are sinful and rotten enough that he had to die. And when you look at the cross, you can know that you are at the same time both deeply sinful, flawed, and wrecked, and accepted, loved, and delighted in. And in that world, you can be a part of a human community without shame and without boasting, a new kind of upside-down community. And then finally, he sends us on an upside-down mission. I love this window that Paul gives us on his ministry uh, in the first five verses of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, that's the gospel, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Here's what Paul's saying. He says, I, when I came to you, I came to you trying to make myself very, very small, I came not boasting of my own wisdom or my eloquence, not in my gifts as a teacher or a communicator, not in the the outward impressiveness of my ministry. I came trying to remember only my own sin and weakness and the incredible saving power of the cross. I tried to take my life and my ministry to you and strip it away, strip away all of the other things that you might be tempted to look at and be impressed and to come to you only with a message of human weakness and divine salvation through uh, the upside-down message of the cross. You know, it's amazing uh, and and sometimes quite uh, disheartening how far the church can come uh, from that kind of simple ministry, right? How quickly we can come to believe that the ministry of the church is dependent on, Outward signs of success and church growth and, and great speakers and funny jokes uh, and impressive programming. Right? How quickly we can try to look at the, uh, try to succeed by the world standards. Look at uh, the world standards of power and success and popularity and goodness and what's impressive uh, to be our uh, philosophy of ministry in this world. You know, the, the, uh, the passage from Isaiah uh, that Paul quotes at the very beginning of our reading, that, that section of the reading that's uh, it, it's in our verse 19, it's set off to the side in most translations, where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is from a part of Isaiah's ministry where the Assyrian army is bearing down on Israel. They are right at the doorstep, the most powerful invading empire of the world at the time. And God is telling his people through the prophet Isaiah, here's what you need to do if you're gonna withstand this assault. You need to repent of your idolatry, your false gods, the other things you've trusted in, and you need to rest in me, and I'll deliver you from this. It won't be easy, but, but I'll deliver you. You can trust me. And yet Israel's leaders, their religious leaders, their political leaders, their military leaders said, okay, that's a good good plan. Sit here, do nothing, repent, and trust in God. Um, But another good idea would be for us to go down to Egypt. Uh, That's the other most powerful empire at the time. They had uh, the the top-of-the-line technology. They had chariots before anybody else in the ancient world had chariots. Uh, They had an incredible amount of wealth and power and they said we'll go down to egypt we'll make an alliance with the egyptians they'll come up and they'll defeat the assyrians for us sounds like a good plan form a good alliance beat off uh, beat beat back the uh, invading army and yet god says i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the so-called discerning i will thwart that my salvation my power my plan doesn't look like attaching yourself to the best technologies, the best methods, uh, the best ways of success by worldly standards. It means the simple way of repenting of your sin, trusting in the power of God's grace, and waiting for him, waiting for his salvation. You know, doesn't it seem, uh, this is a hard thing to talk about, it seems like every week, uh, if you follow the news, uh, that there is another story of Christians in power abusing their power and it being exposed. There's a story, a, a story that is staggering, staggering in, in the level and reach of it uh, that came out just this week of uh, another sex abuse cover-up scandal among the, in the Catholic Diocese of Pennsylvania. And before we look at that and go, see, that's why we're in a Protestant church, Story after story has come to the news. One just this week, the, the, the church in uh, Willow Creek Church, just outside Chicago, a church that, and a leader that people around the country looked up to as a model for successful ministry. I went to conferences from that church to look at how do you do it? How do you build a big and impressive and wonderful and powerful church? The pastor and all of the people around him recently stepped down, admitting that they had covered over years of abusive sexual practices between the pastor and women in his ministry. And it's easy from the outside to look at that and say the church has a sex problem. And, and certainly, right, we are a share in the human race. We have, we have issues with disordered sexual desires. But I think more than that, the church has a power problem. For too long, we have cherished and, and elevated people who could deliver the goods Incredible preachers who could grow a church, who could build something impressive. And just people in that situation, and this is not, please don't hear me, this is not about that church. This is an endemic that happens in big churches and small churches. Where nobody is willing to tell the truth anymore about sin. Nobody's willing to tell the truth to protect innocent people. Because we have far too much invested in our own success. And our own growth. And, and what looks impressive to the world. And yet Paul says, no, no, no. It's not your bigness. It's not your shininess. It's not your success that makes you a sign of the kingdom of God. It's your upside-downness. In the church, you should be the first to to repent. The Christian pastor should be the first one to say, guys, I have blown it hugely. Right? I, I said something inappropriate. I did something inappropriate. I looked at something inappropriate. Because we've already said we're weak. We've already admitted we're sinners. We should be of all people, people who have nothing left to hide. Because the cross already leads us to admit the worst about ourselves. We are ugly, we are sinful, we are broken. And God chooses the little, the weak, the humble, in order to push his upside down kingdom forward. And so let's pray. Let's pray for our own church. That God uh, would keep us boasting only in the cross, not in our own goodness. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters who've been afflicted afflicted, uh, by some of the pain of these things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe uh, that the cross, that paradoxical upside-down image of God dying, of a Savior bleeding, of humble love, is the central fact at the center of the world, at the center of our lives, that that cross is the hope of the world. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we thought that salvation uh, would come through our own power and goodness. Forgive us for the ways that in our own lives today we're prone to believe that if our bank account gets big enough, things will be okay. If our kids turn out a certain way, things will be all right. If our marriages look a certain way, things will be good. Lord, save us from the ways that we trust our own goodness. Save us from the ways that we trust our own ingenuity and power and abilities uh, to push forward your mission in this world. Lord, we lament uh, for the ways that we have clung to power and success uh, over the simple way of the cross. We admit that it it doesn't just happen uh, in big and impressive-looking churches, uh, that it can happen here. Lord, that uh, we too can be so fixated on our own plans, on our own desires and ambitions, uh, that we lose sight of the humble way of repentance and humility and love. Lord Jesus, help uh, protect Christchurch in town. Help us to be a community where our only boast is in the cross, where all divisions between us fall down at, its, at the foot of the cross. Where together we can find a safe place there in the embrace of the cross. A place where it's safe and we're free to admit that we are sinners loved by Jesus. That our lives, messy though they are, are being remade and redeemed. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that you would help us uh, to be a cross-shaped, cross-formed community. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.